good day and welcome to the Mercy Hill Podcast. My name is Lawson Harlow and I'm one of the elders here at Mercy Hill Church. What you are about to listen to is a sermon that was preached during our weekly worship services in Olive Branch, Mississippi. We hope that you will be encouraged by the preaching of the word as you aim to follow Jesus and make disciples. For more information about Mercy Hill Church, you can visit mercyhillob.org or you can find us on Facebook at facebook.com slash mercyhillchurchob. Thanks for listening. Well, good morning. If you have a Bible, Romans chapter 8. This is the last time that we can say that for a little while. Romans chapter 8 is where our text will be this morning. We've arrived at, at the end. We're going to read this morning verses 28 to 39, and we'll focus in uh, all of our time on verse 37 this morning. But verses 28 to 39 is what we'll read together to give us some context. So when you get there, if you would please stand in honor of God's word. Romans chapter 8, beginning in verse 28, and we'll read down to verse 39. We believe that these words were given by inspiration of God and are the only sufficient, certain, and authoritative rule of all saving knowledge, faith, and obedience. And we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good. For those who are called according to his purpose, for those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his Son in order that he might be the firstborn among many brothers. And those whom he predestined, he also called. And those whom he called, he also justified. And those whom he justified, he also glorified. What then shall we say to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how will he not also with him graciously give us all things? Who shall bring any charge against God's elect? It's God who justifies. Who is to condemn? Christ Jesus is the one who died more than that, who was raised, who is at the right hand of God, who indeed is interceding for us. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation or distress or persecution or famine or nakedness or danger or sword? As it is written, for your sake, we are being killed all the day long. We are regarded as sheep to be slaughtered. No. In all these things, we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. For I am sure that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor rulers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. Let's pray. Father, this morning, make clear to us that we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. That in everything that comes our way, we are, in fact, objectively, if we are in Christ, more than conquerors. That we conquer greatly. And Lord, teach us this morning, show us that according to your word, the way of conquering is the way of the cross. help us this morning to understand the truths of your word, not simply to understand them in our heads, but Lord, that they would take root in our hearts and that we would behold the beauty of Christ, that we would be reminded of the weight of his work on our behalf, 
And that as we leave here, that we would be awestruck at the gospel that we believe about the truth that you've given to us. Lord, I pray this morning that you would give me clarity of mind. I pray that you would give us ears to hear. I pray that if there is one here who is apart from you, that you would draw him or her to yourself. And Lord, we pray that in all we do today, that that the preaching of your word would be accompanied by your spirit. It's in Christ's name we pray. Amen. Yesterday, I, I read that yesterday was the anniversary of Jim Elliott and his partners in the ministry in Ecuador being killed in an effort to share the gospel with a, a group of people, a tribe known for its harsh dealings with outsiders. And I was thinking through, I, I kind of think back a, a, upon quotes that uh, have been especially helpful to me in my life. And I was thinking through a Jim Elliott quote yesterday that says, the will of God is always a bigger thing than we bargain for, but we must believe that whatever it involves, it is good, acceptable, and perfect. And we arrive at a text this morning that Jim Elliott had to have been convinced of in order to say something like that. We arrive at a text this morning in verse 37 that completely changes the way that apart from Christ, we would think about what it means to be a conqueror, that what it means to to conquer or to have victory. And we arrive at at a verse this morning that, if understood rightly, can help us and can cause us to look at the present, to look at the future without fear and with full assurance. And so this morning, in shorter terms, we arrive at a verse that is far too lofty for us to comprehend in the next 45 minutes. But that's what we have, so that's what we're going to use. So verse 37. No, in all these things, we are more than conquerors through him who loves us. What really has been working out since verse 29 is is after Paul said in verse 28, and we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good. For those who are called according to his purpose, he has gone on to prove why that is true. If If you want to know, we talked about this last week, if you want to know why it is that all things work together for the good of those who love God and who are called according to his purpose, well, his purpose began for you before the ages began. Verse 29, those whom he foreknew, those whom he loved beforehand. Not only did he love you beforehand, if you're in Christ, he he predestined you for adoption as sons. Not only that, but at a moment in time, he he called you to himself. There was a moment where in your heart, there was a, a change from a heart of stone to a heart of flesh. There was a moment where you went from hating the things of God to loving them. He caused that in you. And then he says in verse 30, and those whom he called, he justified that he made you right with himself. And that if you are justified, then it is good as done that you are glorified, that what he has promised, what he has sworn, will come to pass. He says, so do you want to know how it is that all things work together for your good if you are in Christ? Then here, let me tell you, his plan for you started from before the foundation of the, the world, and it's already sealed all the way into eternity. There's no doubt about your eternity if you're in Christ. And so he works out in these these next 
verses, verse 29 to really to 39, why is it that we can trust this promise? So he goes on in verse 31, he says, we, we can trust that all things work together for our good because he gave us himself. And if he is for us, then who can be against us? And not only did he give us himself, it says he gave us his son in verse 32. And if he gave, if it, gave us his son, then what else is there to give? And then he says in verse 33, if there is anyone, and really in verse 34 as well, if there is anyone who can bring a charge against us, if there's anyone who could condemn us, it surely is the one who knows all things. Surely it's the one who is omniscient, God himself. And it says he's not going to bring a charge against us because we've already been justified. How are we justified? Well, he tells us in verse 34. It was Christ is the one who died. Christ is the one who was raised. Christ is the one who is at the right hand of God interceding for us. And then he kind of erupts in this last question, who shall separate us from the love of Christ? You want to know for sure why all things can work together for our good? Because there's nothing. He ends up saying in verse 39, nothing else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus. You want to know that all things work together for your good? There is nothing that can intercept the love of Christ for you. And I said last week that we would spend some time today on verse 37, that in all these things, we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. Because it seems to me that while Paul has been arguing why we can trust the promise of verse 28, in verse 37, he, he shows us or argues to us how Romans 8, 28 works out in our lives forever. How does this truth that all things work together for our good work out in our lives forever? And so we arrive at verse 37. In all these things, we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. And I think it would be most helpful for us to define again. I mentioned it last week, but for us to define again, what does it mean to be more than a conqueror? So that, that's kind of the anchor of this verse. And all these things, we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. What does it mean to be more than a conqueror? Well, this word in the Greek is a compound word. It's two words put together. And it means to exceedingly conquer, to prevail mightily. It's the only time this compound is used in the scriptures. To prevail mightily. It's, it's the word, the first word is, is hooper, or I'm probably not saying it right, and that's okay. Ho, hooper, hooper. And it's, it's the idea where we get our word hyper. It means over. It means beyond. It means above. It means more than, than normal. And so it uses that word first, and then it adds to that word the word nikao, which is where we get our word Nike. It means to conquer or to prevail. And so when you put these words together, it means to conquer exceedingly or to hyper-conquer or to super-conquer. And that's where we get this translation to more than conquer. And last week I said that, in my opinion, John Piper had the best definition of what it means to be a more than conqueror. And I'll read it for you again. He says, if you're a conqueror, your enemies are dead at your feet. And if you're more than a conqueror, your enemies get up from the dead and serve you. And I think that is where we land this morning. What does it mean for our enemies to get up from the dead and serve us? Because this is, this is naturally counterintuitive. 
conquering is, is war language. And it would seem that as we think about conquering in the, in, the, in the worldly sense, there's always a sense in which conquering comes at a great cost. I was reading a few months ago a book about Churchill during, the, during World War II, and there was this ever-constant reminder that Churchill knew that everything he did had a, had a, had a huge cost associated with it. Whether it was a monetary cost or a, a, a family cost or whether it was a human cost, whether it was a cost for, for their advance, he, he understood that there was every decision he made was associated with a cost. But Paul says we are super conquerors, that we are more than conquerors, that the, the war is won. And in the winning of the war, the things that we lose pale in comparison to what we have gained. So if you look at verse 18, for I consider that the sufferings of this present time are what? Are not worth comparing with the glory that is to be revealed to us. Paul would say elsewhere in 2 Corinthians that, he, that we are being prepared for an eternal weight of glory, which that eternal weight of glory makes the, the sufferings, while they're real, and we'll get to that in a moment, it makes us, it makes us see them as, as if they're on a scale. And Paul says there is not even worth comparing with the glory that's to be revealed to us. And so this morning, my desire is that we would break down verse 37. We're going to break it down into five different sections and see what Paul is arguing for in this verse and what it means that our enemies would get up from the dead and serve us. What does it mean that we are more than conquerors, that we more than conquer, that we hyper-conquer? And so the first section that I want to look at is just the first word. And I mentioned last week this frustration with our, some of our English translations that we have in the ESV, this word, no. But really, in the sense of, of, of the argument, no is understood. It's, it doesn't have to be mentioned. The word is but. So it really reads, but in all of these things, we more than conquer through him who loved us. And so the question is, can anything, and this is a review from last week, can anything or anyone separate us from the love of Christ? And we discussed this question last week. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? In verse 35, he gives this question and then he gives this long list. Can tribulation do it or distress or persecution or famine or nakedness or danger or sword? And he gives this very clear illustration from the Old Testament. He says, for your sake, we are being killed all the day long, regarded as sheep to be slaughtered. And then he gives us the answer. And it's almost as if the, the answer is building up to be no, right? Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Is tribulation going to do it? No. Distress? No. Persecution? Famine? Nakedness? No. Danger? No. Sword? No. It seems as by the end of it, Paul is setting you up to scream, no, none of these things can separate me from the love of Christ. How could anything separate me from his love? I know from, from earlier in the chapter that he loved me beforehand. I know that he elected me to salvation. I know that he called me out of darkness. I know that he justified me. I know that I'm already as good as glorified. And he says, he says yeah, I know what you're thinking. It's no, but that's not the, the full story. We're ready to scream, no, nothing can separate me from the love of Christ. And he says, but it's actually greater than that. It's actually better than that. It's actually greater than you ever could have imagined. Not merely, no, can that not separate you, but it's greater than even that. 
And I think we can pause here just on this first word and marvel at this verse. Even the first word of this verse is dripping with hope. He says, of course, it's assumed. It's assumed that there is nothing that can separate us from the love of Christ. And we think back to who we were. And we realize that God loved us, that he loved us before while we were still sinners. That Christ died for us. That he loved us before we had done anything good or bad. And we marvel. We marvel at this kind of love, this kind of love that would give his own son and in his own son would declare us righteous and would declare that that there is nothing that can separate us from that love from beginning to end. But that's just the first verse word. He says, but, and then second, not only do we see that he says, but he says, in all these things. Now, I love if you look at through the scriptures, the, the, one of the best words, I think, in the scriptures is the word but, right? If you think about Ephesians 2, we see in Ephesians 2 this, this, this long list of who we were. He says, you were dead in the, tresp- in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked, children of the devil, following the course of this world. And he says, but God, being rich in mercy, because of the great love with which he loved you, he sent his son. We see that here as well. He says, all right, so you've seen this list of things that might separate us from the love of Christ, He says, even death, we're being killed all the day long. Can any of these things separate us from the love of Christ? And he says, but in all these things, we are more than conquerors. Why does he say in all these things? What does it actually mean that all things work together for good? I don't think it's an accident that we see this correlation. All things work together for the good of those who love God and are calling to according to his purpose in all these things. Almost as if he, he's saying, if, if, if you doubt that these things are included in the all things, I'm just going to go ahead and put the all there for you. All of these things work together for your good. And I love that he says, in all these things. Part of being a, a, a good reader is asking the question of the author, why did he or she use this word and not another word? And Paul here uses this word in. And as I was thinking about it this week, I was thinking about why does he not say in spite of instead? Because read how it would sound. No, in spite of all these things, we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. That would be a major feat in and of itself to say, and we do say things like this, in in spite of all of the difficulty that I've faced, I, I believe and I know that he is faithful. That in spite of everything that I have been through, I know that he is faithful. And we say these things, and this is still good news. And Paul's saying it's actually, it's it's so much more beautiful and amazing than that. Yes, in spite of all of these things, in spite of tribulation and distress and persecution and famine and nakedness and danger and sword and even death, we, we, we believe that God is faithful, but he doesn't just say in spite of these things. He says, in these things, that in the sufferings of this life, he is communicating to us that we are more than conquerors. And he doesn't just say, in spite of these things, and he doesn't just say, in these things. He says, no, verse 37, in all these things. 
that there is no experience of suffering or pain or hardship that he will not use for your good and for his glory. There's no experience. There's nothing in this list, this, this list that really encompasses everything. We can jump down to verse 39 and say anything else. This list that encompasses everything. He says, he says we know this to be true, that in all of these things, in every single one of them, every experience of pain and suffering and hardship that will be used for your good and for his glory. I think it's important that we note that he is specific here. If someone doesn't want you to question their argument, they'll be vague because then you can just kind of skirt around the questions. But, but Paul wants us to be sure. He says, in all of these things, we are more than conquerors. And just as a reminder, I think Paul here so clearly puts to bed this lie, this lie that the Christian life is separate from suffering, this lie that, that if you are in Christ, then the fact that, that, that you are in Christ means that no bit of suffering can touch you. And the reality is we know that from our own personal experience. But he, he puts to bed here again that not only is it that, no, that suffering will come, it's that suffering will come that you cannot handle. You, we often hear this cliche that God will never give you more than you can handle. All of these things I can't handle. Tribulation and distress and persecution and famine and nakedness and danger and sword and death. What answer do I have for these things on my own? I end up in this place where I said, this is meaningless. Let us eat and drink and be merry for tomorrow we die. What's the point? That he says, no, in all these things, these things that you cannot handle, you are more than a conqueror. And so let's put this together so far. If you're, if you're kind of taking notes and you want to get a third heading, we are more than conquerors or we more than conquer. So, but in all these things, third, we more than conquer. What does it look like that all things work together for our good? Let's look at the language. He says, in all these things, we are more than conquerors. We pointed out before, and probably for the last however many months we've been in Romans 8, the, the, the persistence of Paul in using this word, we. This, this persistence of, of Paul in saying that, that there is a specific group of people who this is for. And who is this specific group of people? He says in verse 1, there is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. He says, so if, if you want to claim this verse, you better make sure that you are the one who can claim it. And the one who can claim it is those who are in Christ. Those who have been foreknown and predestined and called and justified and glorified. He says, this is who this is for. And this is who this promise is for. We are more than conquerors. In all of these things, each of the items of the list, we are more than conquerors. He's saying that the things, the people, the instruments that sought to kill you by the power of God are turned into things and people and instruments that communicate the love of God to you. 
And so we ask the question, how can we conquer in the midst of tribulation or distress? How can we conquer in the midst of persecution or danger or sword or nakedness? Because the scriptures have clearly communicated and Paul has clearly communicated already that everything we face, dear brother, dear sister, everything we face comes from the Father's loving hand. That there is nothing that he is outside of, that he's apart from, that he, that he has no control over. And I think the best picture of this is, is in Genesis chapter 50. And so if you have your Bible, hold your place there in Romans 8 and turn with me to Genesis 50. Genesis 50, really we'll start reading in verse 15. This is the story of Joseph. It's right at the end where Joseph's brothers have come back and, and, and they're kind of nervous. And so here in Genesis 50, Joseph and his brothers are going to have a conversation. If you start in verse 15, it says, When Joseph's brothers saw that their father was dead, they said, It may be that Joseph will hate us and pay us back for all the evil that we did to him. So they sent a message to Joseph saying, Your father gave this command before he died. Say to Joseph, please forgive the transgression of your brothers and their sin because they did evil to you. And now please forgive the transgression of the servants of the God of your father. Joseph wept when they spoke to him. And so the brothers come, and, and we know from the story what's already happened in Joseph's life. Well, Joseph's brothers plotted to kill him because uh, they hated him. We know that they hated him because it says in the scriptures uh, in Genesis chapter 37, now Israel loved Joseph, his father, uh, Jacob, Israel, loved Joseph more than any of his other sons because he was the son of his old age and he made him a robe of many colors. But when his brothers saw that their father loved him more than all his brothers, they hated him and could not speak peacefully to him. And then Joseph doesn't help things. He says, uh, I had a dream uh, where, where you, all my brothers and my parents are bowing down to me. Verse 37, uh, chapter 37, verse 8 of Genesis says, so they hated him even more for his dreams and for his words. And then Joseph, as a 17-year-old kid, comes to his brothers on an errand from their father. And his brothers see him, and they, and they plot to kill him. But one, Reuben, Reuben has mercy on him, and he plots to rescue him by simply throwing him in a pit. But traitors come by, and the brothers sell Joseph into slavery, and then they rip up his garment and cover it with an animal's blood and lie to their father about what happened. And Joseph is sold into slavery, and he's taken to Egypt and he's owned by a man named Potiphar. And his faithfulness in Potiphar's house wins him nothing but more shame and, and despise. His faithfulness to Potter earns him basically punishment as he refuses to commit adultery with Potiphar's wife. And he's sent to prison, Pharaoh's prison, because he's falsely accused. And in prison, although he's faithful and he helps people interpret dreams, uh, he's forgotten. And finally, he interprets Pharaoh's dreams, and he, he comes out, and there's, and there's a famine. He, he warns Pharaoh of this famine, and, and actually, he gets to this point where he's, he's second in command in Egypt. And this famine, what do you know, brings Joseph's brothers to his doorstep in Egypt. And his brothers figure out who he is. He tells them, in verse 15, what we read, it says, and it may be that Joseph will hate us and pay us back for all the evil that we did to him. They say, we know what we've done. So let us, let us try, to, try to make it better for ourselves. I love what they say in verse 17. Say to Joseph, 
verse 16. So they sent a message to Joseph saying, your father gave this command before he died. Don't forget, Joseph, we're brothers. And there's the command, say to Joseph, please forgive the transgression of your brothers and their sin because they did evil to you. We didn't say it. Dad said it. And then they, they bring the Lord into this. They say, now please forgive the transgressions of the servants of God of your father. We're merely servants of God. Please forgive us. And I love Joseph's response. If you look in verse 17, at the end, Joseph wept when they spoke to him. You notice the appeal from the brothers is, remember your father, remember God. And notice the contrast between what they thought would happen and what happened. They thought he will hate us and pay us back. And it says Joseph merely wept. And we ask the question, how could this happen? What, what does Joseph's meekness show us? Well, in verse 18, Joseph's brothers actually fulfill the promise that God made in the dream. His brothers also came and fell down before him and said, Behold, we are your servants. And Joseph said to them, Do not fear, for am I in the place of God? As for you, you meant evil against me, but God meant it for good, to bring it about that many people should be kept alive as they are today. So do not fear, I will provide for you and your little ones. Thus he comforted them and spoke kindly to them. This is a picture of Scripture that, we haven't, that hadn't even been written in, in human hands at this point yet. This is a picture of the fact that we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. What does Joseph's meekness show us? It shows us that everything we face, everything we face comes from our Father's good plan. What does he say in verse 19? Do not fear for I in the place of God. As for you, you meant evil against me. Or some translations say you planned evil against me, but God planned it for good. And we ask the question in Genesis 50, was all that Joseph faced not evil? Of course. He, he, he faced tons of evil. He faced the evil of, of being hated by his brothers, of being sold into slavery, of being falsely accused, of being forgotten in prison, of being, of being le left there basically to die. He dealt with all of this evil. And so we don't look at this and we say, well, no, no, that's not, it's not actually evil. We don't look at famine and nakedness and danger and sword and persecution and say, oh, I mean, it's not actually, it's not actually evil. We say, no, we, we see that it was planned for evil, but God planned it for good. Just as Joseph's brothers thought that they were thwarting the plans of God, he proved that they were actually executing them. And we even see here, and this is kind of a side note, but it's important to note that Joseph says in verse 21, excuse me, in verse 20, as for you, you meant evil against me, but God meant it for good to bring it about that many people should be kept alive as they are today. And in Genesis, there's this clear understanding that it's not about Joseph. It's about the line of Judah progressing, the line that Christ would ultimately come from, that each of these events in Joseph's life work together for our good. And so he says, 
what you plan for evil, God planned for good. And we go back to Romans 8.37 and we say in all these things, the evil plans of our enemies, God works together for good. How do we know this? Because we are more than conquerors. How are we more than conquerors? Well, fourth, we see that in all these things, we are more than conquerors through him. How is it that we more than conquer? And I love that he says this here. We know that this is inspired. We shouldn't be surprised that it's good and that it makes sense and that it's lovely. He says, no, in all these things, we are more than conquerors through him. In case there's a temptation for us to look at this verse and to say, wow, I'm more than a conqueror. Look at me. This more than conqueror, this super conqueror, this hyper conqueror. Did you hear what, what was just said about me? He says, no, 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 no. We are more than conquerors through him. He says our conquering is not based in our own holding on to him. Isaiah 41, say, fear not, for I am with you. Be not dis- dismayed, for I am your God. I will strengthen you. I will help you. I will uphold you with my righteous right hand. John 10, and we read last week, my sheep hear my voice, and I know them, and they follow me. I give them eternal life, and they will never perish, and no one will snatch them out of my hand. My Father who has given them to me is greater than all, and no one is able to snatch them out of the Father's hand. I and the Father are one. Almost as if he says, lest you become arrogant, look at the way that you conquer. It's not through your own power, because we already know that these are more than we can handle. He says it's through him. It's not based in our own holding on to him. And I think it's important to point out that it's not based in the trials themselves. Trials themselves have no power to show us the love of Christ. What do I mean by this? There's a cliche, and as a teacher, you know, you walk down a school hallway and there's just posters full of cliches. But there's a cliche, and I saw it recently, that said the same, y'all probably know it, the same water that hardens the egg, softens the potato. Maybe you haven't heard it, but that's what it says. The same water that hardens the egg softens the potato. And I was thinking about that because when you think about our lives, it it could be said, and and we, we could get the wrong idea here, that there's just something about difficulty, about suffering itself that, that makes us or conforms us into the image of Christ or that, that, that causes us to understand the love of Christ in a new way. But what we understand is this is all of God. This is all of Christ. What do I mean? If, if someone in the world goes through suffering, They get to this point that we got to just a moment ago, that this is meaningless. It's not not that the suffering and the trials itself communicates the love of Christ to us. It's that he gives us grace in the trials that transform the trials, the trials that are real, the trials that are painful, the trials that are actually suffering, the trials that, that are unimaginable. He transforms them and communicates the love that he has for us through them. That our conquering is not merely based in the trials, but his power in them. So what is our conquering ultimately based in? It's based in the work of Christ. When he says something like, in all these things we are more than conquerors through him, 
He's reminding us of who conquered on our behalf and what that conquering looks like. And I want to ask you a question. What does that conquering look like? How did Christ conquer? And in order to do this, we have to take a field trip all the way back to Genesis chapter 3, where God promises to the serpent, I will put enmity between you and the woman, and between your offspring and her offspring. He shall bruise your head, and you shall bruise his heel. We ask the question, how did the seed of woman conquer over the seed of the serpent? We can go to John 16, where Jesus says, I have said these things to you, that in me you may have peace. In the world you will have tribulation, but take heart. I have overcome the world. This is the same thing, tribulation. That's in the list in verse 35. In the world you have tribulation, but take heart. I have overcome the world. How has Christ overcome the world? Or John would write to us in 1 John, I'm writing to you little children because your sins are forgiven for his namesake. I'm writing to you fathers because you know him who is from the beginning. I am writing to you young men because you have overcome the evil one. I write to you children because you have the father. I write to you fathers because you know him who is from the beginning. I write to you young men because you are strong and the word of God abides in you and you have overcome the evil one. And we ask the question, how have we overcome the evil one? Or 1 John 5, where he would say, everyone who has been born of God overcomes the world. How have we overcome the world? Or if you would turn with me to Revelation, and you don't have to, but we're going to be here for a minute. Revelation chapter 2, we have this refrain through the book of Revelation. It's the same word. I told you that, that more than conquerors is a, is a compound word. The second word, nikao, that word where we get Nike, the word meaning to conquer, is throughout the book of Revelation. If you look in, in Revelation chapter 2, verse 7, it says, Behold, he is coming with the clouds, Jesus, and every eye will see him, even those who pierced him, and all the tribes of the earth will wail on account of him, even so. Amen. We look at verse 11 in verse 2, in chapter 2, sorry. He who has near, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. The one who conquers will not be hurt by the second death. The one who conquers. Hear it again in verse 17. He who has near, let him hear. Hear what the Spirit says to the churches, to the one who conquers, I will give some of the hidden manna, and I will give him a white stone with a new name written on the stone that no one knows except the one who receives it. Look at verse 26. To the one who conquers and who keeps my works until the end, to him I will give authority over the nations, and he will rule them with a rod of iron, as when earthen pots are broken in pieces, even as I myself have received authority from my Father. And I will give him the morning star, he who has an ear. Let him hear what the Spirit says to the church. As you go on in chapter 3, verse 5, to the one, the one who conquers will be clothed thus in white garments, and I will never blot his name out of the book of life. I will confess his name before the Father and before his angels. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. If you look at chapter 3, verse 12, the one who conquers, I will make him a pillar in the temple of my God. Never shall he go out of it, and I will write on him the name of my God and the name of the city of my God, the new Jerusalem, which comes down from my God out of heaven in my own new name. Verse 21, the one who conquers, I will grant him to sit with me on my throne as I also conquered and sat down with my father on his throne. 
He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. And I would ask you, church, what does, what does the Scripture speak of when it speaks of what Christ does right before he sits down on his throne? If you look at the book of Hebrews, it says that he made an offering for sins once for all. What is it? What is it that is the conquering force? What, what, is, what is the truth? How did Christ conquer? Revelation 5 gives us, gives us the answer. Then I saw in the right hand of him who was seated on the throne a scroll written within and on the back, sealed with seven seals. And I saw a strong angel proclaiming with a loud voice, who is worthy to open the scroll and to break its seals? And no one in heaven and on earth or under the earth was able to open the scroll or look in it. And I began to weep loudly because no one was found worthy to open the scroll or to look into it. And one of the elders, this is verse five, said to me, weep no more. Behold, the lion of the tribe of Judah, the root of David, has conquered so that he can open the scroll and its seven seals. And between the throne and the four living creatures and, the, and among the elders, I saw a lamb standing as though it had been slain with seven horns and with seven eyes, which are the seven spirits of God sent out into all the earth. And he went and took the scroll from the right hand of him who was seated on the throne. And when he had taken the scroll, the four living creatures and the 24 elders fell down before the lamb, each holding a harp and golden bowls full of incense, which are the prayers of the saints. And they sang a new song saying, worthy are you to take the scroll and to open its seals. Why? For you were slain, and by your blood you ransomed people for God from every tribe and language and people and nation, and you have made them a kingdom and priests to our God, and they shall reign on the earth. What does it mean to conquer, he says? You were slain, and by your blood you ransomed people for God. How is it that he can be worthy to open the scroll? What does it mean that he has conquered? standing there as a lamb as though it had been slain. What does it mean to conquer through him who loved us? Why does, why does Paul here, right after he says we are like sheep led to the slaughter, that all the day long we are being killed, why does he say here that you are more than conquerors through him who loved us? Because the means of conquering that he has ordained is the way of the cross. The means of conquering that he has given for us is the way of the cross. When did Christ crush that head of the serpent? He said, it is finished, and he died. How did Christ overcome the world? No one took his life from him. He, he gave it freely. How have we overcome the evil one? Through the blood of, of his cross. How has every single one of our accusers been silent? It is Christ who died. How are we the conquerors? Because we are the conquerors in him. Why is he worthy to open the scroll and to open its seals? Because he was slain. And Revelation 12, I think, gives us the final picture of this, the piece of this picture, if you will. In Revelation 12, we see the words in verse 7. Now war arose in heaven, Michael and his angels fighting against the dragon, and the dragon and his angels fought back, but he was defeated to be the dragon. And there was no longer any place for them in heaven. 
And the great dragon was thrown down, that ancient serpent who is called the devil and Satan, the deceiver of the whole world. He was thrown down to the earth and his angels were thrown down with him. And I heard a loud voice in heaven saying, now the salvation and the power and the kingdom of our God and the authority of his Christ have come for the accuser of our brothers has been thrown down who accuses them day and night before our God. Look at this verse 11. And they have conquered him by the blood of the lamb and by the word of their testimony. For they loved not their lives even unto death. How did they conquer? Because they loved not their lives even unto death? Paul says, can it separate us from the love of God that we are being killed all the day long? That we are regarded as sheep gone to the slaughter? He says, no, we've conquered because we loved not our lives even unto death by the blood of the Lamb and the word of our testimony. Verse 12, therefore rejoice, O heavens, and you who dwell in them. But woe to you, O earth and sea, for the devil has come down to you in great wrath because he knows that his time is short. This morning as we were talking in the parlor, Don said something that made me think about this phrase. Like, oh, it feels like cheating. It's like, it's, it's, it's like Satan is here and, he's, and he, he's, he seems to be conquering, right? But killing those who are in Christ. And it's like, no. We already won. Thank you. You have, you have shown to us our victory, that we've conquered. And we ask the question, and we look through church history, how could our brothers and sisters in church history go boldly to their deaths? It's because they understood this passage. How could Polycarp, one of the early church martyrs, be burned with fire? And say, bring it on. How could Jim Elliott Elliott say something like, I seek not a long life, but a full one like you, Lord Jesus? How, How can this be? It's because this verse is true. All these things, in all these things, we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. And let's look at that last phrase. We are all conquerors in him who loved us. I think it's vitally important that we notice the change in tense here at the end of verse 37. He's been talking in what feels like present tense and all these things. We are more than conquerors. Shall anything ever separate us from the love of Christ? It almost feels like this looking forward. And then he says in verse 37, no, in all these things, we are more than conquerors through him who loved, past tense, who loved us. Why does he change it to past tense? I'm convinced it's because he wants us to think about a specific instance of God's love. What do I mean? Where have we seen earlier in Romans 8 this proof that he loved us? It is Christ who died. More than that, who was raised, who was at the right hand of God. Again, past tense. It was Christ Jesus who died. We could even go further. He loved us before we had done either good or bad. Verse 29, that he loved us beforehand. That's what foreknew mean, that he knew us and loved us. And those whom he foreknew, he has already glorified. And church, this is, this is the, what we might call the ballast of our assurance when we sing the song. What is the ballast of our assurance? It's not that we have some, some great feeling about Christ. 
It's not that we have some great feeling that he's going he's to bring us through to the end. Your assurance is in something objective, in something sure. What is your assurance in? How do we know that we are more than conquerors through him? It's because he loved us. And Romans 5 would say he loved us while we were still sinners and that he died for, Christ died for us. And he loved us before the ages began. This is your ballast of assurance that in the midst of the real suffering that verses 35 to 39 mention, that we can be sure he loved us. And if he loved us then, he does not change. He loves us now. And he will love us into eternity. And so, church, objectively, this is not a feeling. This is not a a hope so. If you're in Christ, you are more than a conqueror. You are more than a conqueror. And I would remind you what Revelation chapter 21 says at the end, almost the end of, of the scriptures. John writes for us, The one who conquers will have this heritage and I will be his God and he will be my son. What is that heritage? It's a new heaven and a new earth. But more than that, it's it's what verse 3 in chapter 21 of Revelation says. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them and they will be his people and God himself will be with them as their God. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes and death shall be no more and neither shall there be mourning nor crying nor pain anymore for the former things have passed away. And what's, what's glorious about this is that while this is our hope, while this is what we look forward to, while this is what we know is sure that is ours, we also know that every single thing that happens to us between now and then is preparing us for the weight of that glory. Every single thing. Let's pray.